You are entering the Freedom Hut. Get ready for MAGA 2020, my friends. President Trump is officially launching his re-election campaign down in Orlando, Florida tonight. Huge rally plan. Going to be a ton of energy, enthusiasm, and Trumpiness on display. Also, the president claiming that he will start the deportation of millions of illegals next week has Democrats on edge. Could this be the turning point in the immigration fight? We've got that and more coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. This is The Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make Make no mistake. America. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to The Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Thank you so much for being here, man. It's going to be a big night in Orlando, which uh, is exciting for certainly all the folks in Orlando. And I'll be I'll be watching tonight as I as I can, uh, maybe not live, but I'll be watching the entirety of the rally so I can bring you all the latest and greatest on it tomorrow. Man, this is Trump in his element. You know, the Trump is not going to be able to. He he can, he cannot be denied. He cannot be contained. He cannot be stopped. He is going to be on fire, my friends. And this is going to be a reminder to so many who have seen a president who's focused on doing the job, who is still trying to gain background that was was lost and and deal with with all the damaging nonsense of the Mueller probe. You know, I mean, he's he's trying to trying to get a a momentum going here again. But man, tonight, I think it's going to be fantastic. And you've got. So many people who are already gathered. I, I saw all this footage of folks who were in a, uh, they were, I think they were in tents or they had certainly had a lot of umbrellas out, just pouring rain and they were waiting a day in advance. Mike, did you see some of this? I mean, people really want to, they really want to see this Trump rally. That's pretty amazing stuff. So I, I wish I was, I wish I was there as, as a journalist and as, and as an, I'm not a journalist, you know what I mean? Whatever. As a media person, whatever, whatever my people ask me this, what's your job? So, well, I'm a, I'm a radio host, but it's, I do a lot of things. I don't really think journalists is one of them though, but I, I do wish that I was, uh, I was able to be there live and, and just sort of see how this goes, but I've got responsibilities up here in the swamp. Got to try to keep the country from collapsing you know nbd i've just got some things i gotta do as one does but we'll see what the trump has in store for us tonight and uh, as we go on here i know there's a lot of a lot of excitement in the air about the prospect of trump finally getting out there and making his case to the american people remember it wasn't trump's ground game or the the RNC apparatus around him. It wasn't that there was some campaign staff that was writing great speeches or whatever. I mean, Trump managed to pull off a something that must be described as a political miracle, and he carried most of the load on his own shoulders. And it was his own political skill, his own energy, his own messaging that managed to beat a Hillary campaign that was all but assured of victory. At least that's what we were told. So I am I'm very much looking forward to uh, the Trump moment tonight. I might even go over to the Trump Hotel for a little bit. That's right. 
the emoluments clause. Oh, no. Well, I'm not a foreigner, so it's okay. I can spend money at the Trump Hotel. I don't think that I, I can tell the president what to do because I go over there and have a scotch. Actually, I'm not going to have scotch. I'll tell you, I'm going to have some mezcal. It's my favorite. It's really what I'm into these days. Maybe sometimes tequila, but mezcal. I've been drinking gin and tonics lately, too, which I can tell you sometimes makes me feel like a like a very established lady. Like, oh, gin and tonics. Yeah, I, feel, I always think of gin and tonics are what... Would ladies who lunch in in Georgia would be drinking? But maybe am I maybe am I thinking of a mint julep? I'm probably confusing it with a mint julep. But gin and tonics are good, you know. G and T, why not? Um, but the big issue that looms behind all this, you're like, okay, Buck. So there's going to be a rally tonight. That'll be fun. What do we really have to look for here? One, the president is going to be saying, stay the course on China, stay the course on terrorists. By the way, we're going to have uh, Michael Pillsbury, the author of The 100-Year Marathon, the book that I've read and told you all that is worth reading. He's going to join us later on to give us a sanctuary where he thinks U.S.-China strategy is. We'll have a nice, fulsome, robust conversation with Michael Pillsbury. I'm looking forward to that. And that's certainly going to be part of what Trump talks about. And he's going to take some bows on the economy, as he should. The economy is really good. I was on uh, I was on Tucker's show. Uh, not t- uh, pardon me. Uh, I'll be on Tucker's show. I think tonight. So if you get a chance, you can tune in around uh, the eight Eastern hour. Should be on Tucker's show for a little bit. I live five minutes from the Fox News studios. So I can pop in and out. Believe it or not, it's pretty pretty easy. Um, but I, I should be on Tucker's show tonight. Although it's rolling coverage, and they're going to have, you know, they got. Unfortunately, if they're about to put me on air, and then the leader of the free world, the president of the United States, takes the stage, I will get bumped. So. That may happen. It's one of the one of the pitfalls of the media business that I'm in here is that you know when the president of the United States is speaking, nobody cares what you have to say, Buck. So you got to just step aside and be quiet. Um, but no, I think I should be on Tucker Show. I was on Shannon's show last night, and some guy, Democrat strategist person, was trying to make the case that the economy is not good. And I just kind of had to laugh. I said, "Are we? We're really doing this? We're, we're really going to do this?" Well, the uh, the polling shows that uh, people feel it, uh, that their that their bills are higher and their income is lower. And I'm like, okay, well, there's what people maybe kind of think in some places, according to some poll. And then there's the cold hard facts. And here's what the cold hard facts tell us: the economy is doing very well. Unemployment is incredibly low. Black and Hispanic unemployment at historic lows. Uh, the stock market is strong, which is, they always go, oh, it's the fat cats, the billionaires, stock market. No, the stock market is an indicator of company profits and companies hire people. Stock market is an indicator of how pension plans are doing and whether they'll be able to meet their obligations and whether, you know, the stock market's a lot more than just, you know, well, I've got, you know, my ship has come in and I've got the market beat. (laughs) But your pants are too tight in the seat. Remember that guy from... uh, Caddyshack. Some of you know what I'm talking about. I know. Yeah, Judge. Judge what was Judge? Uh, what was his name? Uh, Judge. I know his real name in real Smales? life. I can't. It's Ted was Knight. It Judge Smith. Yeah, Ted Knight. Was it Judge Smales? I think. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's it. Judge Smales. Okay. Bushwood, sir. You will never join Bushwood. Not while I'm a member here. He's he was great. Caddyshack really holds up. Good movie. Uh, so. Trump has to deal with the economy. But anyway, so there's this Democrat strategist guy sitting next to me on the Shannon show, and he's like, you know, this, that. look, he's got a tough job. I'm not going to lie. He's trying to say, <laughs> my favorite, though, is when they go, yes, the aspects of the economy that are strong are thanks to Obama, but the bad things are thanks to Trump. I'm like, oh, okay. So now we're going to try to parse three years 
after Obama leaves office, what parts of the economy that are good that are Obama, uh, you know, Obama's taking credit for versus, look, we all know if the economy did what they all said it was going to do when Trump took office, it would all be the, sorry, I just whacked the microphone by accident. I got so excited. I hate when I do that. It would all be the Trump economy, right? They, they would they would hang it all around Trump's neck if it was, but because it's going really well, they go, oh, it's the Obama economy. No, it's not. It's ridiculous. But the big issue, and the one we're going to dive into here for a few minutes, and then we'll talk about just the general atmospherics going into tonight and Biden. And I thought about having a bunch of people from the, you know, the RNC or the campaign or something. Um, I don't know. I'd rather talk to you. I, I've got thoughts. This is the Freedom Hut. I reign supreme in here. I'm not really, I don't feel the need to have uh, some spokesperson from such and such Republican whatever come on because they're just going to tell you stuff that you already know. Uh, but the big issue is immigration right now because Trump said starting next week, there could be, well, he said there will be, he didn't say there could be, deportations starting. And he said the millions of people who are here illegally, they're finally going to be held to account for breaking the law. And these deportations and the whole situation uh, could, let's just say, create a frenzy, a complete freakout among Democrats. Uh, this is going to call their bluff on caring about border security. Well, let, let's take a moment here, get ready for the fact that Trump tonight is, you know, everyone kick back, relax, let the good times roll. Trump's going to be giving his speech tonight in Orlando. It's going to be fantastic. Let's now look more at what he meant by immigration uh, will be enforced. There will be the deportation of millions of illegals that are in this country starting next week. Here's why, here's what I'll, I'll tell you, uh, whether that can actually happen and whether this is going to have the intended effect, I will tell you all of that, though, in just a moment. U.S. foreign assistance to the Northern Triangle countries of El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. We will not provide new funds for programs in those countries until we are satisfied the Northern Triangle governments are taking concrete actions to reduce the number of illegal migrants coming to the U.S. border. Working with Congress, we will reprogram those funds to other priorities as appropriate. This is consistent with the President's direction and with the recognition that it is critical that there be sufficient political will in these countries to address the problem at its source. As Secretary Pompeo has said, these nations have the responsibility to take care of the immigration problems in their home country. Why is it such a shock to the libs? that the United States government now is going to pull back funds from countries that are not doing their part in helping us deal with the immigration crisis. You know, they say, oh, this is going to make it worse for those countries. Well, no, this is what you do when someone does not uphold their end of the bargain. You know, the, the way the libs structure this debate or structure this, this argument, it's, it would be like if I said, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to the bakery and I'm going to go buy a loaf of bread. And the baker says to me, oh, I'm sorry, I'm actually uh, not going to sell you a loaf of bread because I don't want to. And then I say, okay, well, I'm not going to give you money anymore. And then all of a sudden you see all these news stories. Oh, my gosh, the bakery's going to have to close and it's going to be terrible and, you know, all this stuff. And, well, yeah, but they also could just do what they're supposed to do, right? And then, and then the money's on again. 
But it's not supposed to be just you know open-ended. We're not supposed to give these places a blank check. We're giving them foreign aid when we ask them to help us out on something that's reasonable, which they totally can do, then they should do it. But you see, this is this is the the uh, I, I don't know the, the the common sense based brilliance of the Trump approach to things, which is what would a normal person do if faced with this problem? Let's do that thing in government circles, and when you're especially when you start talking about libs, but never mind that even just in federal bureaucracies and the oh my gosh, the State Department. What do you mean you're going to take a common sense approach to this? There's nuances. There's equities. There's things you have to take into account here. Okay, fine. We're we're the United States. We're giving them money. We don't. We're giving them taxpayer dollars. We don't have to do this. You know, not every country just gives other countries free money because they they feel like being good people. We do this, and then of course we're always told that we're the bad guys, right? By libs and by people in different countries that are taking the money. Uh, but we're going to have some of this be contingent on a little more cooperation. It does seem like now there's a greater attention paid to this than there was before, and Trump should get credit for that. The Trump administration has has gotten really serious about dealing with this problem, which brings me now to the deportations question. This, my friends, I've been calling it from the beginning, and you know that if you've been listening to this show. When the libs are really going to freak out is when you have aggressive efforts to track down those who are in the country illegally, but specifically, and I think there should be a prioritization on tracking down anyone who does not show for their immigration hearing who has claimed asylum. People who are scamming the system. Anyone who who is in that category should be told that they are no longer allowed to stay in the country. You're gone. Because they've abused the system. They're in the country illegally. The, the whole agreement we have with them being here is when you're asked to show up to court to have your asylum claim adjudicated, you have to go. If you're going to break that agreement, if you're going to break that promise that you're making to the United States government when you're signing those documents and saying you're going to show up, you have to go. Libs are going to lose their minds over this. And they'll show us, we will see that the libs do not, in fact, want immigration law to be enforced. They do not believe that the laws mean what they say. They think there's some some other way we're supposed to interpret all this. They think that the, the lawlessness of systematic, systematic fraud at our southern border should not be uh, confronted. But Trump is right. Make this a priority. Make those who have violated immigration laws and come to this country, you know, make them understand that if you try to defraud our system and take advantage, and that's really what one of the things that bothers me so much about this, because people are taking advantage of the goodwill of the American people. To, per- to pretend to be an asylum seeker when you're really just an economic migrant is like someone pretending to have you know a, a cup in their hand on the street because they say they're starving to death and they need food, but really they're going to use that money to pay down their credit card bill. I'm not saying that that you know that that I can't understand or sympathize with the need to pay down their credit card bill, but if they're telling me it's for food or, or else they're going to starve, that's a different that's a different level of of severity, and that's playing on my concern for my fellow human beings. 
Asylum is about that. It's about if you are in a country that has turned on you or the government has turned on you for whatever reason, we will give you safe harbor here. It's not, I don't like my country because it's poor and dysfunctional. If that were the case, we'd have to take hundreds of millions of people into this country, no questions asked. Completely change what, what America is and who are Americans. Overnight, really. I mean, over a very short period of time. If it was just, if you're poor, you don't want to be in your country, you want to come here, go for it. And that's what has happened for countries in walking distance of America that are not Mexico. I mean, not really walking distance, but where you can get here uh, via ground transport. They're abusing our system, and Trump is saying enough is enough. I have been saying all along that as soon, you know, because they were playing games six months ago, all these libs, they're not illegal, they're seeking asylum, they're legitimate asylum seekers, like we're all idiots, right? We know they're not legitimate asylum seekers, we know they have no intention of showing up, but until they didn't show up, we had to play, okay, well, maybe some of them will, and we got to, you know, get their due process, even though it's all taxpayer-funded, and this is not what the system's supposed to be doing. Uh, now we're going to see the libs just do what they always do, which is abandon the principles that they pretended to have. The storyline a few months ago even was they deserve their due process. They're going to show up. You can't you can't tell us with certainty that they won't show up. And this was a way of taking some of the heat out of the moment when the American people were finally focused on the massive and systematic fraud that was occurring at our border. They said, oh, no, they're going to show up. They're not committing fraud. Well, even, well, they are breaking the law by being here, but they're not committing fraud beyond that. Yes, they are. 90% of them are not showing up. 90% of them, this was the scam all along. And Trump is going to hold them to account. And you're going to see Democrats, and I think most importantly, you're going to see a lot of the American people seeing Democrats unwilling to enforce our laws after they assured us that when it comes to rule of law and immigration, they're on the same page. They just want to do it humanely, but they're on the same page. Bull. They're not on the same page. Their plan is to continue this lawlessness and then eventually get through a massive amnesty that transforms America into a one-party, Democrat-controlled state. Got more on all this, friends, coming up in a moment. Woo, we're rocking in the hut. I'll be right back. Joy, Joy I know you're one of the ones that think it's naive to think we have to work together. The fact of the matter is that we can't get a consensus. Nothing happens except the abuse of power by the executive. Zero. Number one. Number two, there are certain things where it just takes a brass knuckle fight. There's no way to do it. And so, folks, look, if you start off with the notion there's nothing you can do, well, might you all go home then, man? Or let's start a real physical revolution if you're talking about it. Because we have to be able to change what we're doing within our system. Biden there with a, a Bidenism. Let's start a real physical revolution if you're talking about it. What is that? What does that mean? I, I, I'm not going to pretend that I think Biden is calling for an overthrow of the government. But what is a physical revolution? Is that spinning around in place real fast? It's physical and you're revolving. What is a physical revolution? That's what he said. Look, I'm just going based on what the the Bidenator is putting out there. I'm just trying to tell you that Biden is uh, a guy who. The, the, the Democrats are going to find out the hard way that he's he's not their man eventually. It's not going to work uh, if they think that Biden's going to pull them through, but uh, pull through for them. It's just not going to happen. Um, I, I think that 
I'd even go so far as to say that that Buttigieg is a better candidate for the left than Biden. Um, you know, here's uh, we have Mayor Pete's husband, uh, Chasen Buttigieg, was talking about how he receives all this hateful stuff. Play clip eight. I wish I could stand here and tell you that all of the responses to my husband running for president have either been positive or that the criticisms have simply been about his policy decisions. I wish I could tell you that every voicemail, email, social media message and text I receive isn't hateful, bigoted or homophobic. I wish I could tell you that the world has unequivocally accepted Peter and I and our marriage, but I can't. And that's why we march. You know, I, I, look, I, I think anybody that writes Mayor Pete's husband uh, nasty, you know, bigoted stuff is a, is a moron. So and people shouldn't do that. They shouldn't do that to anybody. But I, I also just would note that the media I'm seeing more and more of this of how all oh, the, the people who get attacked on the left, these Democrats being attacked by in bigoted ways and hateful ways. I mean, man, this is just. There are complete lunatics running around on social media all over the place. Doesn't matter who you are, if you're making a public case, they're saying horrible things to you. Horrible. You should see what they say to some of my friends who are Second Amendment advocates, people like Dana Lash, who I used to work with, the hate, the people threatening to go after her children, and just the most, hor- I can't even say stuff, the most horrific stuff imaginable, said them all the time. But because if you're a Republican and people are threatening your family and they're saying they're going to kill you and they're saying all this terrible stuff, the media just has no interest in it. But if you're in a protected class and you're a Democrat, then we're all supposed to say, oh, my gosh, look at how coarse and terrible the country's become. Uh, there are a lot of coarse, bad people out there. Doesn't excuse any of it. And, you know, if, if I had my way and anybody that goes after Mayor Pete or or his husband for their uh, for their sexual you know their sexuality or for their marriage or anything else should should be told that they're uh, you know terrible <laughs> it's a terrible thing to do and they're jerks and um but you know there there's always this double standard it reminds me of how we remember we used to hear all the time about all the threats against Obama when he was president you always hear oh there's a huge surge in threats against Obama uh that there's threats against Trump all the time. You never you never hear about any of them. You never hear about this at all. Uh, you know, they just skip right. Or, or the threats against people that are, that support Trump. You know, this is It's just another instance of, of the double standard and the way that rules are applied in, a, uh, in an unequal fashion by the press and, and the rules about you know decorum and decency and public discourse. They should be universally true. I mean, people shouldn't act like total savages toward anybody in politics, toward anybody for their sexual orientation or their skin color or anything else. Unfortunately, there are, there are idiots all over the place. But you really are only told that you have to be sympathetic when the target of some idiot is is a Democrat. You know, When the target of some idiot is a Democrat. So get ready for a lot more of that. There'll be no sympathy from the media for anybody in Trump world who is the target of death threats or horrible things or you know their family is yelled at or someone spits on them. But any Democrat, in this election that you hear bad things about or that you hear bad things have been you know, said to, threatened, all this, and, and it's going to be a national news story. So even though the left is where most of the crazy resides, they're going to make it seem like the right is where all the hate resides. And if I'm your nominee, winning Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, believe it or not, and I believe we can win Texas and Florida. If you look at the polling data now, doesn't mean it's a, it's a marathon. It's a long way off. 
Joe Biden, everybody, having his big moment here before Trump's even launched his campaign. Oh, that will end tonight. Biden gets to say whatever he wants, promote whatever nonsense he wants to promote about how he's going to be a great fighter and, you know, all that. And, you know, Biden is a weak candidate, folks. Always has been, always will be. Biden is a weak candidate, and the Democrats are in a secret panic. I don't care what the polls say right now. The polls mean nothing. You go back, you know, Mondale was Mondale was up in his poll. I mean, you know, there's all these different all these different people that are uh you go back in history who lost the election in but in huge numbers, but at this point 18 months out from from actual voting where I it, it means nothing. So people say, "Oh, but Biden's ahead in the polls." Yeah, it's cuz the media runs around saying, you know, that this is necessary for the salvation of our democracy and people hear that enough and there's no real counter narrative that they're exposed to and maybe some of them start to believe it so that's understandable but biden's a one percent guy and once trump opens up a can of you know what on this guy i think i can say whoop ass on radio right isn't that hell yeah am I, yeah i can say whoop ass right it's a fun thing to say once biden opens up i'm sorry trump opens up on this guy you're going to see that he's just he just doesn't have it. You know, the this, this stuff I've seen from Biden so far, he really looks like a guy who's just way past his prime. Age is not the same for everybody. I've been saying this. There are some people who are 70 who could kick my butt, outrun me, and, you know, do inverted push-ups while they're making fun of me for being lazy and spending too much time prepping for radio and not in the gym. There are other 70-year-olds who, you know, look like, mobility is a real problem and it's not clear, you know, how, how many healthy years they have left. I mean, there's a huge gap, you know, 70 isn't just 70 or, you know, I know they're both right around that age. Uh, Biden looks old to me. Sounds, I don't mean looks as just appearance wise, well, that's a part of it, but I mean, he's, he lacks energy, low energy. Biden's going to be a thing you hear from, from Trump because it's true. But the more people see Biden, and I, like he's out there now and he's saying he's going to, He's going to win Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina. I was just waiting for him to do the Howard Dean. Remember that? Producer Mike, do you remember that? When he made that noise? And then that was the Oh, end. yeah. He sounded insane. He he managed to audio self-immolate in one in one moment. It just happened. <laughs> Every Everyone saw that. And they're going to, we're going to go this place and that place and this place and that place. <laughs> you know, he made this bizarre noise and everyone's like good god man where did they find this person yeah you know what if you if you have this could you find the scream real quick if you could i want to find find the screech for us because that's a fun just just a little trip down memory lane for everybody joe biden's not gonna win texas oh you mean that they can spend millions and millions and millions of dollars and celebrity endorsements and and throw all the media coverage they can at texas and lose again great that's what they'll do and they'll lose Although if amnesty happens, maybe they will. But that's if amnesty happens, the country as we know it is over. It becomes a different country. So that's part of why it's so important that we have the immigration discussion that we are having right now. Uh, but look, Biden's out there. He's he's trying to be the front runner, and you know Bernie's right behind him. I would much rather. I'm just going to tell you this. I'd much rather see a Bernie Trump race. I think that's a more interesting, just as a political event. I think that's a more interesting race. I think that 
the discussions. I, I want them to be out in the open. I, I don't like that Democrats are able to get away with this. Oh, we're not really the Democratic Socialist Party. Or, you know, no, I'm sorry, you are. And, and I want them to have to own it. And Bernie, for all of his flaws and all of the ways that I think that he's dangerous and bad for the country, at least Bernie does own that. You know, he doesn't run away from that like a little coward. He says that he is a Democratic Socialist. And then you have all these Democrats who are clinging on to Bernie policies. They agree with him on everything. They want to be like Bernie. They want to be more like Bernie. I don't know if you, they, they, I want to be like Mike. I want to, you guys remember that commercial Michael Jordan back? Oh, yeah. That, might, that was awesome. Oh, yeah, you remember. All right, yeah. Yeah, they want to be like, I really, man, I've, I've had some 90s nostalgia going on lately. The 90s were the best. 90s were a great time. Um, so there we have it. Uh, Biden was talking about Obamacare a little bit here and, and trying to give his pitch to the American people about what might have been or what could have been different on that one. Here, here's what, but I remember these are, you're just getting snippets of who is Joe Biden? He went through eight years of being the guy that was Obama's wingman. That was really all we were, although I guess technically Eric Holder thought he was Obama's wingman, but you, you get what I'm saying. Eight years of Biden getting to play the Veep role. Here's what Biden really thinks and here's who he is. You're getting, you're getting a sense of it now, too. This is what they're doing to health care. This is what they're doing to you have to go out and beat these folks if you don't if they don't agree with you by making your case. And that's what presidents are supposed to do. Persuade the public. Last point I'll make. Remember with the Affordable Care Act, because everything landed on President Obama's desk but locust at the time, he had no time to explain the Affordable Care Act. Once it got started to t- taken away, all of a sudden the, we have what we call in Southern Delaware an alder call from all those boys. An alder calls saying, oh, my God, I'm for health care. I don't want to take away pre-existing conditions. I, I want to make sure, et cetera. And so you go out and you beat them. Obama had no time to explain health care. I mean, Obama was out talking about health care for months and months and months and months. The bill was thousands of pages long, folks. How is he going to explain thousands of pages? It was never going to happen. It was thousands of pages on purpose, just like the tax code is. 70,000 pages, so that nobody knows what's in it. Nancy Pelosi told us that they needed to pass it to know what's in it. They weren't even sure what the law would look like once it became the law. It was rammed through without a single Republican vote. And now they're rewriting the history of how we got to Obamacare. Now, now they, they, pre-existing conditions, that's, I mean, Republicans... Uh, you know, how you allow Democrats to seize the high ground on the pre-existing conditions thing, which and, and, and don't go out there telling everybody that true pre-existing conditions is less than one percent of the healthcare market. People with true, not the way that the healthcare system is actually, you know, people. I, I know the stories. I had a friend who, you know, they, they wouldn't take his tonsils out because they thought it was from an infection that happened 10 years before with a different healthcare company. I mean, I know that insurers play games and nonsense, but if we're talking true pre-existing condition that would put somebody outside the normal health care, normal, normal health insurance market, because you're not somebody that they're assessing health care risk for anymore. You are a health care risk because you're going to need a lot of health care dollars spent. It's different. It's less than 1% of the market. So why not just, and if they, if the Republicans have gone to the American people and said, look, insurance is for catastrophe, and if you have a true pre-existing condition, you've already been hit essentially by a health catastrophe of some kind, or at least a major health challenge. And we should have a set aside where if you get pushed out of the healthcare market entirely for a legitimate pre-existing condition, 
there should be funds in place to help that person because we are a compassionate and good people and we want to take care of each other. You know, that, that would have been not that hard to do, but Republicans didn't do it, didn't do it. Look, we, folks, we Republican Party's got a lot of problems. A lot of big pharma dollars swishing around. Pharmaceutical companies do get away. I was going to say get away with murder, but that's that's uh, hits a little too close to home in the era of the opioid epidemic. Uh, but, you know, they, they get away with all kinds of stuff. And, you know, they abuse patent laws to their advantage. And there's a lot there's a lot that needs to be cleaned up on the medical side. Don't even get me started on the amount of unnecessary surgery that happens in this country. I was talking to a friend recently, a very uh, skilled top top tier uh, cardiothoracic surgeon. And she said that the the amount of unnecessary surgery that's done in this country, when you really read the studies, will blow people's minds. But it's big business. Huge, huge industry. You know, I mean, here's just one example. You know that appendicitis, we always have our appendix taken out in this country. If you have a really bad appendicitis, you're, you know, they're worried your appendix is going to burst. Uh, in Europe, they just treat it with antibi- intravenous antibiotics and the outcomes are just as good, if not better. We got a lot of people, though, that, oh, 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 it's an easy surgery. Take out your appendix. And that's a little tiny one. Once you start looking at surgeries for, uh, you know, dealing with different vein conditions and different uh, blood, different issues of of the uh, cardiovascular system, oh, man, there's a lot of that. But, you know, this is, if we wanted to have a a real conversation about health care, that would be one thing. But Biden just wants to boil this all down to, oh, it's about pre-existing conditions. Obamacare was a whole heck of a lot more than that, my friends. It was a lot of taxes. It was a lot of redistribution of wealth, a lot of government overreach. But if it just turns into the redist- I mean, it just turns into uh, pre-existing conditions. It's very popular for people. They, they, will, they want pre-existing conditions covered. You know, this is not an area where the American people want to turn their back on each other. So, you know, he's able to, he's able to get away with it, folks. He's going to, you know, Trump says we're going to have a health care plan in the next few months. Can I be a little critical here, my friends? Why why don't they already have a health care plan? Why haven't the, the Republicans had eight years of saying Obama's plan's terrible? We couldn't repeal and replace, and now we got to wait three months for a health care plan? I mean, or, can we try to hold our side a little bit more accountable sometimes? I mean, yeah, the Democrats are a bunch of crazy, baby-killing commies. I get it. But can we do something to get our side to be a little more effective? I think that would be nice. I think that would be helpful. You know, otherwise, you know, maybe Joe Biden can win some of these southern states. I, I hope it's I will say this, though, on, on, a, on a good note. I do hope that it's Biden because Biden Biden's not going to be able to get it done. Biden won't be able to beat Trump. I'm very confident in that. Bernie, as crazy as it sounds, worries me more than Trump does. I'm sorry, than Biden does. Bernie worries me more. Because you could see people believing that Bernie is an agent of change. I'm not saying this is true. I'm just saying the perception could be there. An agent of change, not beholden to special interests, not personally odious the way Hillary Clinton was, and has ideas that he pushes for people that seem on their, you know, on on first glance like they're going to be popular and they're a good idea. So I do have my concerns about about the burn. I still think Trump wins, but with Biden, I mean, I, I would put money on on Trump beating Biden. I have no worries about that. The United States is running concentration camps on our southern border. And 
that is exactly what they are. The fact that concentration camps are now an institutionalized practice in the home of the free is extraordinarily disturbing. Ocasio-Cortez saying that concentration camps are operating on our southern border. She also referred to uh, never again in a, I believe, in a tweet about this. And this caused some problems for the left-wing Democrat darling. Because it's one of the dumbest things I've ever heard. And she should know better, but she doesn't. And that's troubling on many levels. By way of review, the concentration camps she was referring to are the Nazi concentration camps. The Nazi concentration camps involved the wholesale slaughter and attempted mass extermination of 6 million Jews, 11 million human beings, including, I believe, 2 million Poles, a million gypsies, 11 million in those death camps, 6 million Jews of that number, gassed, executed, starved, scientifically experimented on. I mean, just the most horrific stuff imaginable. Uh, A crime for which humanity will never fully pay a penance. I mean, it it can never be made right what happened. And she's comparing that to what is happening right now in this country. And she said that's exactly what they are. She didn't say I'm I'm making a uh, an exaggerated point, or I'm I'm trying to draw attention to one aspect of this. She referred to the concentration camps, uh, referred to never forget. We all know what she was talking about. This isn't a dog whistle. This is just a whistle. It's obvious. And uh, Art del uh, Cueto pointed out that of of border of border patrol said that this is just a a terrible lie, a horrible thing to say. Play seven. It's disgusting to compare uh, concentration camps to what the men and women are doing here protecting our country. Uh, I mean, you, I, in my eyes, honestly, you lose credibility. I've had it, you know, up to here with all these individuals constantly trying to compare concentration camps to what we're doing. I was just at one of the detention facilities. The kids were outside their cell because we have so many of them. They were out on the floor playing puzzles. They were watching movies, uh, eating cookies and and what have you. And it is definitely a slap in the face to a lot of these individuals that have family members that actually went through concentration camps. I've said it many times. Some of these people need to crack open a history book before they make some comments. They do need to crack open a history book. On the left, although I think that there is no shortage of people of leftists here who just they don't care about the false uh, the falsehood that they spread as long as it is politically useful to them, as long as this is something that they can uh, use as a a short term cudgel against their peers uh, or against their political opposition, I should say. That's what they're trying to do. And. You know, I've, I've got to tell you, uh, the blue checks who were rushing to defend this today were just an embarrassment, including Chris Hayes of MSNBC, Julia Yaffe, some left wing journalists. And there, and there are a whole bunch of them who should just be ashamed of what is a, a completely bizarre and dishonest attempt to try and make this sound like it was something other than what it was, that AOC 
wasn't really referring to uh wasn't really referring to Nazi concentration camps. Concentration camps existed before the Nazis. Does anyone think that Ocasio-Cortez was referring to the concentration camps in the Boer War in South Africa? No one really believes that, right? Oh, no, some do. You had a lot. You had uh, some guy, Dave Weigel. Um, Dave Weigel from uh, Washington Post. Chris Hayes. Julia Yaffe. Yaffe wrote, hi, actual Jew here who lost dozens of relatives in the Holocaust. Concentration camps predated the Holocaust. For example, the Soviets had them before the Nazis. And then she goes on and attacks some of the people that are attacking AOC. These people, they just can't help the fact that they, they get so upset. They make stupid. I mean, this is laughable. This is not a serious defense, right? They don't really believe this. Um, despite everything else, I mean, you know, Chris Hayes, who is, you know, he, he looks like the left-wing Brooklyn liberal version of what an intellectual is supposed to look like. Um, but, you know, th- what, what he's done here is make himself look like a jackass to try to defend AOC. Um, try to defend AOC and say that this is somehow not the dumbest thing that's been said in a long time. Uh, but it's a joke. I mean, he's, he's ridiculous in doing so by trying to make this anything other than what it is, which is AOC comparing this to Nazis, you're just being intellectually dishonest to try and cover for her. And that is what is going on. Um, That's what's happening here. Uh, You know, you've got people saying that, you know, concentration camps is an accurate term to use here. Those people are morons. The kids that are being held in these detention facilities at the border, because I've been there and I've seen them too, are held for two days. Max, in a vast majority of cases now, they're held for two days, they are fed, they receive medical attention, they play with toys, they watch movies, and then they're sent on their way into the interior of the United States, by the way. What an astonishing and just stunning series of lies that these people will embrace. I mean, it's just just amazing. All to defend their precious AOC, who's just an idiot. Yeah, I know she won a political election that everyone's, oh my gosh, she's amazing. I'm sorry, she's just not very smart. We, they, they can do whatever they want. They can yell at me and tell me that that's terrible and I'm not to say that. No, she's just not impressive. She's just a classic left-wing talking points machine. Doesn't really know how the world works, is not thoughtful, can't engage with the other side, and just believes idiocy about how society really functions about how governance is done all of this this is a this is a woman who would be is deeply unimpressive before she runs for office and is still deeply unimpressive i don't care how famous she is or everything else but there's a sensitivity here because because she's young and latino and female and super left-wing the left will do everything to defend her there is nothing she can say that is too stupid that is beyond their defense, including a clear reference to concentration camps. By the way, Mike Hayden referred to the concentration camps, the former CIA director. So he's, I'm not AOC is not the only one to be an idiot on this. But not everybody on the left was rushing to Hayden's defense. In fact, most people were saying that that was over the line. Um, but th- this gives you a real sense also of what the what the left really thinks of our border patrol and immigration enforcement. If 
if they're going to defend that these are concentration camps, so then our border patrol agents working at our southern border are they not are, are they concentration camp guards? Is that a fair thing to say? Would they say that to a border patrol agent's face? I don't think so, especially you know the Chris Hayes of the world. What what is it with these the the prototype of the left wing media male is always this kind of you know beta you know there's always these guys you know there's wearing skinny ties and walking around and talking about how they're male feminists and all this stuff you know what is that all about well, it's maybe a conversation for another day AOC sent something really really offensive and dumb and that's not surprising but what is amazing is just watching how many people on the left with big platforms will act like morons the defender freedom freedom what does it mean to be free am i free if i graduate college with massive debt am i free if i have cancer and cannot afford a three hundred thousand dollar life-saving drug am i truly free if i'm 70 years old and forced to work because i don't have the money to retire am i free if i'm denied food at school because i have lunch debt this 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 isn't freedom this isn't freedom we have come to a clear realization of the fact that true individual freedom cannot exist without economic security and independence freedom is health care for all College for all, jobs for all, white, black, brown, Asian, indigenous, Latinx, woman, men, non-binary, gay, straight, rich, poor, you and me, demanding justice, economic justice, racial justice, environmental justice. Notice how that was put out. That was a commercial put up by the Bernie Sanders campaign that forwards the root fallacy of democratic socialism for for all to hear and is and is very open about it very upfront about it that it is the obligation of the state to provide for all of your needs as determined by the state and that is inclusive of taking from you and from me at the state's whim to provide for people under this obligation this is the this is the the fundamental problem, the root fallacy of what you could I guess call Sandersism, which is now in the the democratic socialism that is increasingly embraced by the left by the Democratic Party. Are you free if you don't have a job, a home, uh, a you know the the doctors that you want to see? If you have to work 80 hours a week to buy food, all these things, are you free if you have to do all those things? Well, what does freedom mean to the left? If freedom is only possible with a state providing for you, then that means that the state is able to give you freedom and absent the state, there is no freedom. That's a, I think that's a, that's a troubling concept. But also, they never figure into all of this. And this is why you know, people are saying that they like Medicare for all. And I've seen the statistics on this, and this is, not, this is not surprising. People like Medicare for all because Medicare is free stuff that you're told you paid for. But it's not true. Most people take out twice what they put in. Medicare is the magic piggy bank that you put $100 in and then you take out $200 and just say, oh, well, I paid for that. No, you didn't. You just didn't. I mean, this is the truth. 
overwhelmingly, people end up taking out more Medicaid than they put, pour, uh, they put into it. So it's a nice idea. People like Medicare for obvious reasons. And, you know, Medicaid just pays at a fraction of what Medicare, you know, reimbursement rates are. And that's why a lot of doctors won't take Medicaid. And we get a, everyone wants someone else to pay for their health care. This is really the problem. And even those of us with private health insurance, we like this, this, uh, this idea that you can pay $20 as a copay and see any doctor you want. You know, I haven't had that in a long time. I mean, I, I end up just writing checks to doctors now all the time. I, I have health insurance and it's, it doesn't feel like insurance. I don't know. Maybe if something catastrophic happened, heaven forbid. But in terms of the day-to-day expense, you got to pay for a lot of things. But people like Medicare because, well, one, it's accepted by a lot of doctors. Uh, but they also don't realize that Medicare for all, for all ages and all people, even if that were just an option, would mean that you would have uh, – changes to your health care plan they don't understand it's not just someone else is going to pay for stuff you wouldn't be able to keep your private health insurance if medicare for all becomes the norm every business would say no no i'm not going to provide health care for you go get go get your medicare for all go go hook go hook yourself up with that i mean how many of you listening to this show right now who have your own private health insurance how many of you would willingly switch to an obamacare plan i think the answer is probably zero Unless you happen to have really bad private health insurance, but I don't even know how it could be worse than whatever the Obamacare plan is. Because you know, you know, there's the, the, these basic truths keep coming back. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Bernie Sanders is promising you a free lunch. In fact, in this video, he's saying, or rather his campaign is promoting the idea that you deserve to have a free actual lunch. You should not have to pay for lunch at school. You should not have to... Uh, worry about your your home expenses and and paying your bills and look economic anxiety is real for everybody. I have economic anxiety. You have economic anxiety. But I have no faith whatsoever that the state is ever going to be in a position to make my economic anxiety go away. In fact, I think the state makes it a whole lot worse by taking a lot of my money in taxes and promising to give me services that never materialize and services that I would never want to rely on. But freedom, and you know, we discuss often here in the hut the way the left tries to control language and how it's so necessary for their political program to change the way we use, the, the, the way we define different words, the way we use different words. And to say that freedom is the state's obligation to provide you with material goods is a perversion of freedom. That's not true. The state does not have this obligation. It's not, it's not up to the state to give you the home that you find acceptable. And what is even an acceptable home? When, when has my freedom been achieved? Do I have to work to achieve this freedom, or does the state just give me whatever, it's, whatever I think it needs to give me? Uh, these are all very real questions that I think the Sandernistas, uh, they, they never wrestle with it. They never deal with the reality of what their ideology would do to this country. That, and, and that economic freedom is inextricably linked to social justice. And social justice means you know, racial and, and gender justice as well. And the state then determining what people can get paid, how much they should get paid, who they should hire, on what basis they should make hiring decisions. This is how you get closer and closer to a truly socialist system. 
all in the name of providing you with freedom. He, that's what is what is so disturbing about this is that they are they are telling you Bernie Sanders campaign is promising you that you will be made more free if you just allow the state to take away your freedom. That's I know that that is self-contradictory. That's the point. It is self-contradictory, but that is their platform. Give up your freedom and we will make you free. This is what the Soviets promised. I'm not saying that we're the Soviet Union, but just this is what the Soviet Constitution promised. You're going to have a house to live in, a job to do, food to eat, you know, no problem. We're going to two weeks vacation and all kinds of good stuff in the Soviet Constitution. Never happened. Why did it happen? Because they had a bad economic system with central planning, with corruption, with bureaucrats making economic decisions who had no idea what they were doing. That's why it didn't happen. It was never going to happen. Not the way they said it was. But there were a lot of promises made. There were a lot of overtures about how there would be a worker's paradise. Bernie's campaign here is telling you that if you just had Bernie Sanders in charge, this is a, a form of utopianism. They're going to provide for all your needs. You're not going to work 80 hours to buy food. You're not going to have trouble paying for your insulin for you to survive. You're not going to have trouble... They can't, he couldn't do this even if he was president. That's what you have to remember. This, it's not even just a function of whether this is a good idea to try. It's that the government couldn't execute on this if it wanted to. It just wouldn't happen. So this is all ultimately a lie, but it's a lie that we never seem to be able to get past. We never seem to learn the lesson. At least the left never learns the lesson in this country that socialism is not a good idea. It's been our mission since the uh, beginning of this administration uh, to convince the Iranian regime not to move forward with their nuclear program and not to continue to engage in development of their missiles and all the other activities, the malign activities that they've been engaged in around the world. Uh, that's why we put in place uh, the pressure campaign that's now been ongoing for uh, a year and a couple months. Uh, it's been very effective. And now we need to make sure that we continue to do that so that we ultimately get the opportunity to convince Iran that it's not in their best interest to behave in this way. Uh, we all have to remember this isn't just uh, two and a half years or five years. This is 40 years of Iranian activity that has led us to this point. This moment right here, communicating to uh, Iran uh, that we are there to deter aggression. Uh, President Trump does not want war. And uh, we will continue to communicate that message while uh, doing the things that are necessary to protect American interests uh, in the region. Secretary of State Pompeo gave a press conference today. I watched it live and you heard a, a little snippet of it there on I Iran. And I think he brought a very important context, a very important perspective to a, a lot of people right now that are, one, concerned. And those are the people that are taking a a fair-minded approach to this. I can understand concern, but there are also those who see this, and this is certainly true of a lot of the media and the Democrats, as the moment to start screaming about how Trump is a warmonger, he wants war with Iran, and, and Pompeo said definitively, Trump does not want war with Iran. And, and I can tell you that everyone that I know who either fought or assisted the warfighter in uh, Iraq or Afghanistan, everyone that I've talked to, thinks that there is um, absolutely no way we should go to war in Iran. And that if we do take military action, it should be punitive. 
and defensive in nature, which should not be an offensive regime change effort at all. Um, and that means no, con- you know, because now you start to get, well, well, what does a regime change effort look like? You know, you look at what happened in Iraq. It didn't start off with it. It didn't start off necessarily. This is the second time we went in. It wasn't about an invasion. It was about a no-fly zone, and it was about protecting embattled minorities and oil sanctions and all these different things. But we had military and we had military force in place so that that framework would hold. I, I don't want us to go beyond where we already are in terms of military posturing or military positioning. I think that we have what we need to have. And the administration is trying to make it clear to Iran that unlike Trump's predecessor, when Trump says, right, forget about Obama because everyone knew it wasn't true. And that's why the red that's why Obama's failure on the red line with Syria with the Assad dictatorship was so important. Because once Obama in front of the whole world had said, if Assad does anything, I will take action. You know, if he does anything with regard to chemical weapons, and then he did nothing, you know, that's you want to talk about cozying up to dictators. It certainly makes dictators feel a lot more cozy and at home. Certainly helps them quite a bit. Makes them feel like things are going to be uh, more to their liking. And once that happened, then to say that all options were on the table was just clearly not the case. With Trump, it's true. I've said before that Trump on foreign policy is a little bit like Doc Holliday on the shotgun in the movie Tombstone, where they say that, you know, they want Doc to be on the street howitzer, essentially because he's just crazy enough that he might pull and use it pretty fast. And with Trump, that's that his foreign policy has had an off-balancing effect for the bad guys. They're not used to somebody who will just call out their leadership and and say that, you know, military action will follow any provocation. They're not used to that. They're used to a lot of boilerplate foreign policy speak and uh, stuff that they can that the Iranian regime can largely ignore. But what we see with Iran is they've been ignoring that for 40 years, as as Pompeo was pointing out. I mean, this stretches back to 1979 and the Islam Islamic revolution in Iran. And the way that since then, the relationship has just been one long series of of deteriorations, really. And that it doesn't have to be this way. You know, we don't have to live in a world where there's an Iran that says that they're going to enrich uranium so that it's very easy for them to go nuclear. We don't have to accept that. Here's what uh, uh, the new spoke, uh, spokesman for spokeswoman for the State Department, Morgan Ortega, says about how Iran could just choose to be a normal country. Play five. I think what we're seeing here is, is really a, a challenge, not only in the JCPOA, but really a challenge to the international norms, a challenge to the international norms on uh, freedom of navigation and freedom of the seas. Um, and so we you know, would, would say to the international community that we should not yield to nuclear extortion by the Iranian regime. Look, we need to take a realistic view of these things. We can't just militarily tell China or tell Russia, you know, do this or else. That's very risky business. Uh, There are some countries that we have to do business with, some countries that sanctions won't work on at all. Iran is not one of them. Iran is not a very wealthy country, does not have a very large military. We don't have to accept an Iran that is constantly threatening and blackmailing the international community with the claim that it will get nukes soon. We, we do not have to say that that is okay. 
or, or we don't have to accept that that is the status quo. And this administration, unlike previous presidencies, takes the position that that's not going to fly anymore. That doesn't mean that we go to war. It doesn't mean that there's regime change. It does mean that, you know, if the Iranians try to shut down the Strait of Hormuz, which would affect, it's not just America, would affect oil for all of uh, East Asia. I mean, it's 30% of the world's, 20 to 30% of the world's oil reserves are going through that one waterway every day. A lot of countries care about this. And if the Iranians step out of line, there should be massive consequences for them. But that's the way we should deal with the Iranians, not the Obama administration approach of let's just find a way to placate them. Let's make them want to be our friends. They don't want to be our friends. The mullahs, the IRGC, the Revolutionary Guard Corps, and the, the, uh, the Guardian Council and all the real power in Iran They don't want to be our friends, and we have to view them as people to be defeated, and that's what Trump does. We're talking about what we're doing now, and we are honoring our oath of office to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States. Congress has the right to uh, seek information to honor its oversight responsibilities. We will not let him stand in the way of our honoring our oath of office. Nancy Pelosi still sticking to the whole, oh, we're just doing oversight, man. This isn't, we're not being a bunch of political hacks or anything here. We're just, just doing a little bit of oversight, you know. It's how, we, it's how we get down. It's how we roll. Hmm. We all know that this is highly, uh, highly political. And it's really all about politics. It has nothing to do with upholding the Constitution. We've already, we already had a special counsel. We've already been through a two-year-long investigation. That was unobstructed, that's right, that had so much at its disposal in terms of resources and was led by anti-Trump partisans. So what, what more could a sane person ask for? Well, perhaps I go too far. Perhaps I'm assuming that we are dealing with sane individuals and we quite obviously are not. But I think that the the Democrats, and one of the reasons that they've been so so slow on all of this on the on the impeachment train even though i think i saw a poll today that said that 50% of american voters you know think that trump should be impeached or something like that um what i think the democrats maybe have started to realize is that going through this process again is if nothing else going to be a distraction from the messaging that the democratic party is trying to do on why they should why the American voter should go with a Democrat instead of Trump for re-election. And there's the concern of the blowback. The people that are saying things like Trump should be impeached, they don't, they're not ones who necessarily understand that there'll be more investigations, more process, more this, more that. It's just going to be this endless saga of nonsense from Pelosi and the rest of her crew and it's not going to end with anything with anything happening. I, I bet if you ask the people that are for impeachment of Trump, a big chunk of them, I couldn't tell you how many, but a big chunk of them think that impeachment means he's no longer the president. A big group think that there's a real chance that if he's impeached, he could be removed from office by the Senate. That would be a fun man on the street thing, just, just to find people who want Trump impeached and then ask them, okay, how, how does he get removed from office? Do you know the process? I think you'd find that 90% of those who want Trump impeached probably couldn't tell you that it requires a two-thirds vote in the Senate. 
for him to be removed from office. <laughs> and then their follow-up can be, how many do you think Hillary will be president if he gets removed? How many do you think what? How many of you think Hillary will be named president if he's removed? I guarantee you there's a whole bunch that think that. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's very possible as well. They'll just, they assume that this makes it all, all right all over again. Remember, this isn't a strange number at all. 50% of voters, that's not the same as 50% of all Americans, 50% of voters, because in the last election, 50% of voters, really was, I guess, 51%, voted for Hillary Clinton. So yeah, if you voted for Hillary, you want Trump impeached because you're angry. Because you didn't get your way. So this doesn't really mean anything. Uh, I, I think the Democrats, and you know, tonight is going to be the night when you see Trump being Trump again and starting to make the case. Uh, but I, I think that the Democrats are in for a rude awakening. They've had a pretty easy go of it for a while here. Yeah, Trump tweets at them and will tell them that they're, you know, they're lazy or dumb or whatever, and he's right. But there hasn't been a concerted effort by Trump to tell the American people why they should vote for him again. That changes as of tonight. And Trump is a beast on the campaign trail. I mean, this guy gets people so fired up and does and has such amazing energy. I mean, for a guy his age too to do the things that he does is astounding. And that's why I think, you know, the, the media, this is going to be something you should you should keep an eye on. They are going to be caught flat footed again because they've lived in this echo chamber of Trump is evil. Trump is bad. You know, he's not somebody that you can uh, not somebody that anybody should listen to or trust because he's worse than Hitler. I mean, all the stuff that the media tells themselves. And then you have to also remember that they don't the media doesn't really understand what most people think. That's how you have Chris Matthews. Ah, I'm Chris Matthews. I've got a show on MSNBC. It's just like, who is this guy? And why is he on TV still? Who thinks that he's insightful or worth listening to on anything? Yeah, I'm Chris Matthews. I've got a show. I'm yelling. Blah, blah. It's just, oh, it's horrible. I guess he's friends with the executives over at MSNBC or something, and they just, you know, keep him there. And I mean, that's, that's why TV is full of such. It's such a nasty business and full of so many generally very nasty and insecure people because you can really put anybody at some of these places and someone will watch them. Yeah, kiss my is good. It's just, it's just blather. It's just nonsense that comes out of Chris Matthews' mouth all the time. But he was at a town hall, and he was really taken aback by people saying, "You know what? I actually kind of like how Trump does things." Play ten. Do you think Trump looks out for you? Absolutely. He cares about you. Yeah. I, I think he's honest. I think he's true. Okay, anybody else want to agree or dip? Sorry, you want to say what you think? I look at, I'm, I go by faces. Go ahead. Uh, Mike on the dock. I think absolutely the president of the United States cares about all of us because he provides opportunities. Look, there's 300 some million people in America. He doesn't make a relationship with every single one of us, but what he does do is create opportunities so then we can use our God-given talents to go out and make a living in this country. And that's where we are today. Okay. Uh... Yeah, okay. Yeah, all right. That's actually a pretty, I think it's a pretty astute observation from that random audience member. But that is really what a lot of Trump voters want. They just want a president who is not trying to mess with their life, is not trying to get in their way, tell them what to do all the time, be a busybody. 
This is something that is unique to Democrats, unique to leftists. They are busybodies. They are hall monitors. They want to be up in your stuff, all of it, all the time. Do this, do that, do it this way, not that way. With whatever it may be, with what you can eat, with what kind of light bulbs you can use, with how many toilet flushes you can get you can get away with, with, you know, you name it. They are busybodies. And that's not good for business, and it's not good for the general mental well-being of the American people. We like to be left alone. We like to be left to our own devices as much as possible. We can't harm each other, and we have to honor our contracts, and we have to obey the law. That's pretty much it. Other than that, it should be a real light touch from the government. Not not absent entirely, not, not non-existent. You know, we're not going for some libertarian paradise here because it's never going to happen. But it should be very a very gentle uh, presence in the background. Instead, what we have now is the government standing behind you all the time telling you, do this or else. That's not good. That's not good at all. But I'm telling you now, the Democrat media apparatus, also known as the mainstream media, they have learned nothing. They have learned nothing since the last election about connecting with the American people, understanding the American voter. They will be forwarding their own perceptions of how this will all work as much as they want, as long as they want. They're not going to change at all. They're going to say that, you know, this this is, oh, what's really going to motivate people is, you know, Trump's ethics and all the lies and Russia collusion. Meanwhile, those who are voting in Ohio and in Pennsylvania, they don't, they don't care. They don't care. Why would they care about that? They know the media is hyperventilating, uh, hyperventilating about all the time. They know that it doesn't it doesn't ever lead to anything. We're told, oh, my gosh, look what Trump has done. It's so awful. But it's really not as awful as they say it is. They're constantly exaggerating. They're, they cry wolf. We know that that is what happens. They cry wolf. So I think that uh, Trump is obviously going to have a strong night tonight. When many of you hear this, you'll already have had his speech. I'm going to be getting over to watch it as soon as I possibly can. But Trump, the Trumpster is back in action, folks. And the Democrats just don't have anybody who can line up against them. They don't have anyone who brings the same, the same gusto, the same... X factor. It just the the ability that this president has to mobilize people around an idea and to make it fun and to make it compelling and, and to keep the energy up. He is a political phenomenon. There is nobody else like him. And I was not somebody that right away saw it. And I've been seeing it now for a long time in action. So that'll be a nice reminder for everyone, too. Those who voted for Trump and those who are thinking about voting for him again, who maybe are on the fence for one reason or another, when they see this president doing his thing, I think that any doubts they have will be quickly uh, wiped away. At least that's what I'm expecting. You are now entering the Freedom Hunt Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly neat and out. Team Buck is cleared and ready for the Buck Brief. The United States wants to continue the conversations about structural changes regarding intellectual property theft and uh, forced technology transfers and market openings and tariffs. Uh, We're looking for an enforceable agreement, as we always have. That's absolutely vital. So all those general topics will be on the table. I, I think the market is saying... Better that they are talking than not talking. 
Um, no results are guaranteed. I think people know that. But I think there's a certain joy that they're um, so back to a discussion. Big stuff coming when the administration sits down with uh, China at the G20. President Trump meeting with, uh, with Xi Jinping. There's a lot of issues, and people are starting to get a little bit of economic anxiety over just where all this trade war stuff is going. We've got somebody who can answer this and, and more. Tell us what's going on here. Uh, we have Michael Pillsbury with us, Dr. Michael Pillsbury. He's the director of the Center for Chinese Strategy at the Hudson Institute and the author of The 100-Year Marathon, which all of you know of because I've talked about it here on the show. I recommend it to you. We have the author with us now, Dr. Pillsbury. Great to have you, sir. Hi there. Thanks, Buck. All right, let's start with what should happen at the G20. I mean, what, what's critical going into this for the administration to, you know, what, what should they try to get and what can they realistically get out of Xi, if anything? Well, the talks broke down, and the president was quite angry. And, and then both the comments on the, to the press and also in tweets, he explained that they just can't accept their reneging at the last minute. They had a 150-page draft, the president said, and he, it looked like he thought he was going to be able to get a deal. And for, for reasons that are quite opaque and the topic of a lot of debate here in Washington, the Chinese backed out. So the pessimists thought this is the end of it. The Chinese are just not going to make a deal. And they already are uh, behaving quite arrogantly as though they're the dominant power in the world. So the president's effort over the last two weeks has been to get things back on track without himself making any concessions. So it looks like this phone call that he's talking about this morning in his tweet has really saved the day. The talks are back in existence. At a minimum, the two teams will go back to work discussing the last 10%, as it's sometimes referred to, which is a lot of it's the enforcement. In other words, in other words it's not just words, it's some kind of enforcement mechanism with a review process and possibly additional tariffs. So if, it, if the Osaka G20 is like the Buenos Aires G20 meeting December 1st, There'll be a dinner or some kind of a meal for two or three hours. The two presidents with their staff president will talk back and forth on outstanding issues and then try to improve the area of agreement and get toward the final version. Uh, that's, the op that's an optimistic outlook now because it looks like the hawks in China have really asserted themselves and the President Xi isn't as fully in charge as we all sort of thought that the hawks in China don't really want an agreement. One of them came on the radio in, uh, in Beijing just uh, about a month ago saying he does not want any agreement with the Americans at all. So we're dealing with factions, apparently, in Beijing, in which one group, the so-called reformers, actually want this kind of agreement because it will increase the, the, the power of the free market in China. It will reduce some of the subsidies, and it will probably increase their growth rate. The other side, the kind of Maoists, if you will, they, they, that's what they often call themselves, that they love Chairman Mao. They want a much more state-controlled economy. They love what they call the national champions, these huge companies that are some of the largest companies in the world now. And the Communist Party basically being in all enterprises – so that even a foreign company in China has to have a Chinese Communist Party member to observe everything. This is what the debate's been going on in China for many, many decades. The whole thing that the Chinese created 
that President Trump is dealing with was created back in the early 1980s. This kind of predatory mercantilist system where these huge state-owned enterprises, the Chinese call the national champions, they would have not only subsidies, cheap loans, but also espionage collected uh, trade secrets given to them to help them succeed. So this huge beast, if you will, is what President Trump's been taking on. Previous presidents wouldn't do it. They were either defeatist or they didn't understand the problem. So Osaka, in some sense, could be a showdown that the talks restart. There's some momentum to them, and the Chinese agree on enforcement mechanisms. Uh, how much, how much pain are the, are the Chinese... How much pain have the Chinese been been taking to their economy because of the the Trump policy and, and the tariffs so far? And and do you think that Trump has the, the the both the mindset and also sufficient leverage with his team to at least get, get a, a have a realistic shot of bringing the Chinese to some kind of deal? It's a great question. The Chinese perception of how much pain they're going through is that they say it's zero. They say all the pain is going to be on the American side. They had a piece yesterday in China Daily saying only America will suffer from the trade war. On our side, we tend to look at objective indicators. For example, auto sales have really plummeted since the trade talks began, since the tariffs began to be applied. So we see these objective indicators that tell us China should be feeling pain, but they're claiming that they don't. (laughs) That's part of the problem. The president, I think, wants to go, and I support this, he wants to go for the full $500 billion range of Chinese exports to our country and put 25% on all of it. And even that may not be enough, because we're dealing with this machine created in the early 80s that, as the president likes to say, a past presidents let, let this happen. He even says Obama let them get away with murder. So the amount of leverage it will take to get China to do major changes in its economic system, uh, I think is going to be pretty high. And we've obviously got their attention. They're willing to talk. But the fact that they could renege and essentially stop the talks, that shows me that they're still fairly arrogant, fairly confident, that they, they don't have to do what we request. Do you think that they're just trying to wait things out until they figure whether they're going to be dealing with Trump or some Democrat going forward? How much stock do you put in that analysis? Uh, I, I agree with President Trump that they they think if they wait him out, uh, they'll get Joe Biden, who has already uh, sort of scoffed at the idea that China would ever surpass America. Uh, President Trump likes to say that they want to surpass us, but it will not happen on my watch. And the implication of that is if there were another president, a weak president, let's say Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden, that the Chinese would surpass America. That's the vision that President Trump's holding out for what's at stake in these talks. Uh, I agree with him, as a matter of fact. Um, But the level of leverage it will take to make up for these weak presidents in the past and and how much China has gained on us. I mean, even by, if you look up the CIA uh, fact book, uh, they use purchase power parity. They're indicating that China has surpassed on the American economy as of about three or four years ago. If you use what, if you use what they call the currency uh, exchange rate figure, then we are about $19 trillion and they are close to $14 trillion. So something like two-thirds of ours, 
size, but they grow twice as fast as us. They used to grow four times as fast when they were at 10% a year. Now at 6 or 7%, they're still double our growth rate. So it's a matter of time unless we can uh, get them to play fair and give a level playing field, as the president likes to say, to our farmers and our workers. But that's not happening so far. We're speaking to Dr. Michael uh, Pillsbury, who is at the Hudson Institute and the author of The 100-Year Marathon, uh, which I have read cover to cover. I recommend to all of you listening, if you want to learn about what's going on with China, you do the same. Um, Also, uh, wanted to ask you, uh, Michael, what do we need to know about these protests in in Hong Kong? People are saying a couple million turned out, maybe the largest protests in the 21st century anywhere in the world so far. At least that's what I've seen some of the estimates say. Uh, Why does this matter so much? And what does it tell us about the direction, not just of Hong Kong, but of China? What it tells us about the direction of China is that Chinese who live in Hong Kong, who have their own identity in some ways, and they have British law, uh, British institutions that are guaranteed to them until 2047, they are saying in, in large numbers that we don't trust the rule of law, the legal system, the system of trials up in China. So this new proposal that China can come in and sort of arrest whoever it wants in Hong Kong and they must be extradited immediately to China. By the way, it includes visitors. There's, there's uh, foreign visitors by the millions. Also, there's 85,000 Americans who live in Hong Kong. So this new law that they're demonstrating against would give China a free hand to bring anybody back to China. And they, their claim, of course, is you'll get a fair trial. So apparently 2 million people don't believe they'll get a fair trial if they're expedited back to China. Um that's the that's the issue, and it's a vote of no confidence. It's highly embarrassing worldwide to Xi Jinping and the Chinese leadership. Uh, they obviously thought they could get away with this, and now it's very amusing to me because my book, Hundred uh, Year Marathon, as you know, Buck, it's all about deception and the Chinese use of deception. Their story had been, we have the rule of law in China, Hong Kong should welcome this, and we support it. Two Politburo members publicly endorsed it the extradition law. Now, the Chinese ambassador in London, who used to be here in their embassy, he has publicly said, no, we never asked for this. You know, this is Carrie Lam's own idea. So they're throwing her under the bus because it's so politically unpopular. But I think it's extremely significant that, that Chinese as close to China as Hong Kong Chinese do not believe that the rule of law exists. But will China get its way eventually on this? I mean, how long can Hong Kong resist the second largest economy in the world and increasingly one of the largest military powers in the world as well? A lot depends on this concept of faith and this uh, desire by the Chinese Communist Party up in Beijing to portray itself as virtuous, uh, friendly, honest, they're trying to sell a deception story, I think. That's what I argue about the marathon, that there's going to be a new Chinese-led world order. And under this Chinese-led world order, yes, they'll have the largest economy by far. They'll end up with the largest military forces. But everyone's going to be happy. Everyone's going to be attracted to the virtue of this new Chinese-led world order. It'll be so much better, they say, than the American-led world order, which was so unfair and brutal and you know, involved invasions not approved by the U.N. Security Council. So this is what they've been pushing now for more than 10 years, that this new world we're headed toward is much better than the old American-led order. When these 2 million people turn out, 
it's a kind of a stab in the back from the Chinese Communist Party's point of view. And I, I think as long as the rest of the world pays attention, there was enormous media attention to the demonstrations. It means Hong Kong has not been abandoned, and the rest of the world still thinks that China should agree to its agreement it made with the British uh, back in 1997, that Hong Kong's system of government, what they call the highest degree of autonomy, will remain until 2047. That's a long way to go. But we're going to have to keep watching the situation there, I think, and probably uh, warning the Chinese not to be too heavy-handed. Dr. Michael Pillsbury, author of The 100-Year Marathon and over at the Hudson Institute where he works on China strategy. Uh, Michael, great to have you on, sir. Appreciate it. We'll have you back. Maybe we can discuss the military balance next time. That's what I'm really worried about, Buck. We'll count on it, my friend. We'll get into the military balance for sure. Everybody, we'll be back in just a moment. I'm not bent out of shape. I'm fine. I'm bent out of shape for them. These are the first heroes and veterans and victims of the great trillions of dollars war on terror. And they're currently still suffering and dying and in terrible need. You know, you would think that that would be enough to get Congress's attention, but apparently it's not. We've spent a year compiling bipartisan co-sponsors and advocates for this bill, all in the hopes that when it finally gets to the great Mitch McConnell's desk, you won't jack us around like you've done in the past. So, if you want to know why the 9-11 community has been out of shape over these past, let's call it 18 years, meet with them tomorrow as soon as possible and don't make them beg for it. You could pass this thing as a standalone bill tomorrow. Meet with them. So John Stewart is really pushing this moment here, and and I was initially uh, very supportive of it because of nine eleven, uh, you know, nine eleven first responders. We have an, we have a, a, a debt to them as Americans, not just as New Yorkers, as Americans, uh, and obviously also first responders that were at the uh, Pentagon as well. Um, but John Stewart is now going beyond just the Congress at the problem to naming specific members of Congress and blaming people for things and and calling them out by name. And I, I would note that there's not a I haven't heard him criticize a Democrat yet, which I just this this is a thing that happens where someone who maybe is on the right track overall, but then it starts to get partisan in a way where I think it's fair to ask questions. Uh, Mitch McConnell, who, by the way, they've been funded. I mean, the, the funding is happening. And I think I told you on the show, though I can't remember, that John Stewart's part of his big monologue that he gave that got so much attention, he said this room is empty and it's a disgrace. It's everybody in Congress who was supposed to be at that hearing was there. It was just, it was a bigger room than some of their different size congressional hearing rooms. This is, I read this from somebody who worked in Congress for years and years. And so everybody who was supposed to be there was apparently there, from what I understand. So John Stewart was just, that was a grandstanding moment that he was. But look, I'm going to give him some leeway if he's going to grandstand on behalf of, of uh, people who were at 9-11 doing what they, at the uh, World Trade Center doing what they could. But here's Mitch McConnell responding to what's starting to feel like a pretty political, or, or I should say partisan criticism. Play 14. We've never left the 9-11 victims behind, and we won't again. Uncomfortable about the way uh, you have been thrust to the forefront of this debate over the 9/11 uh, first responders, and does the kind of attention that John Stewart has brought to it have an influence on how you look for? 
I, I don't know how many times I can say we've never left the 9-11 victims behind and we won't again. What are, what do you see as the obstacles or the path forward to getting a deal done? It's something we always take care of. Any other subject? <laughs> yeah. Mitch McConnell is saying that this always gets done. It has never not gotten done in whatever. So I, I, I do get curious at some point. John Stewart, is he upset that they that this isn't automatically in the budget every year? Um, is that is that is this supposed to be a part of automatic spending? And I ask that question not rhetorically or in a smarmy way. I ask it honestly. I, I don't really understand what his the the room wasn't poorly attended when he gave his speech. Uh, you have co-sponsors for the bill like Dan Crenshaw, who's a wounded Navy SEAL and, and veteran of the war in Afghanistan. I mean, you've got people that are very much at- attending to this issue. I mean, you've got major co major major sponsors for the bill. Nobody thinks it's not going to pass. The bill's going to pass. They're going to be funding. So why is he calling out Mitch McConnell acting like he he doesn't care? There's something else going on here, folks. I mean, there's some there's some other considerations that are being are, that are latching on to what should be. A, a pure duty and obligation moment, which is that we, we should be helping the first responders, but it shouldn't be we help the first responders, but let's also just, just bash, uh, bash Mitch McConnell because he's the bad guy here. The funding is going through and it always has. So I, I'd like to know what John Stewart is getting so angry at certain individuals about. This was a troubling article that I came across today from someone who is a, a PhD, I believe a psychologist and or psychiatrist i'm not sure which about the uh, the bigotry this is not what it's called but this is what the article is about and it's really the, the bigotry of trans uh, or, or rather of cisgender heterosexual people against transgender individuals now you might be saying well what, what is that buck i don't understand and that's fine because it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense until you dig into the details uh the purpose of this article are trans people excluded from the world of dating and it goes into some detail about how for a transgender person sexual attraction does not line up with what they might want it to be as in a man who decides to be a transgender woman which, as we know, is still not biologically a woman, may wish to have uh, heterosexual male partners, but heterosexual males, speaking as one, are overwhelmingly not attracted at all to transgender females. Now, the, the dating world is interesting because it's one of the few parts of life where there's a an acceptance of you, you get to kind of pick and choose what you want you can pick by religion you can pick by it's a very personalized decision making process that the social justice warriors have not yet been able to override you know as much as they may want people to uh date a non-binary non-cisgender you know 800 pound uh eskimo uh, you know as much as they may want people to view that as what is sexually attractive and and what we should all aspire to people tend to be attracted to what what whoever and by the way there is somebody out there i'm sure who this mythological person i've just created i'm sure there are people who that is their cup of tea and that's great but we tend to like what we like uh we tend to be attracted to what we're attracted to as people 
Uh, but what's interesting to me is that now within the medical profession, there's already this early because, you know, the most left wing doctors are psychiatrists. And I'm not making that up. That's that's true. There have been studies. The most left wing doctors are psychiatrists. And uh, what we're finding is that now there's a, a pressure on doctors to try to come up with explanations of why transgender women are not attractive to heterosexual men. And the answer is because they're not women. It's very straightforward. They have different. Uh, I'm not going to try to you know beat around the you know be cutesy about this. I'm just they have different genitalia. I mean they they are different down below, and there's a very basic biological impulse of attraction that heterosexual men have, and that we don't find uh women who are trans or sorry transgender women rather we don't find transgender women attractive is exactly what the medical profession should expect because they're not women and that that i know you say that oh no you can't say that they are no 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 they're not you can say they're transgender women but they are not in fact just women that's not that's not accurate that's not true that's not reality um but in this article they get into some uh, really interesting social analysis of how this is a problem to be over that must be overcome. That there's a, a really a, a bigotry, a a sense of um, exclusionary feeling toward people who are who want to be attractive to heterosexuals, but who themselves do not line up in a gender sense with what a heterosexual would be attracted to. This should not be complicated. Doctors should not be befuddled by this. Uh, but sure enough, they are. And this piece in Psychology Today, are trans people excluded from the dating world? No, they're not excluded at all. But we all live in reality, folks. And gender is still real, even if some people want to pretend it's not. Hey. Team Buck, it's time for Roll Call. Letting it air out a little bit tonight. Good times with the Roll Call. Let me just end the Roll Call purr. Let it speak for itself. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Also, you can check in at BuckSexton.com. There is, in fact, a website with my name, or that is based on my name, and you can go there. You can find your local station. You can download the podcast. All kinds of wonderful things happening in the Buck Sexton store, do, or Buck Sexton website. Store's coming. Store's coming. <laughs> Sorry. I got too fast. I got ahead of myself. My fault. My fault. So good times. Yeah, and by the way, you can always just go to BuckSexton.com and, and play the podcast from there. So it's very, very easy. Those of you who like to listen on demand, and that's where I'm at. Uh, so, see, I'm taking a moment to let the whole thing boot up because sometimes when you're doing a live radio show, as you know, it's a wild and crazy thing, and occasionally it won't exactly happen at the speed. There we go. Radio time. All right. Uh, I always appreciate you all writing in. Please, by the way, if you have not written in, it's summertime and the living's easy. So why don't you write into the Buck Sexton Show on Facebook and tell me something good. Tell me something good. You know, you know how it goes. 
I know. I'm in a mood today, folks. I'm in a mood. It's amazing what it's like when you've been uh, overtired and underslept for about 12 months. Actually, you know, a lot of you are saying, yeah, Buck, it's called being a parent and it lasts longer than a year. I know. I don't know how you parents do it. I see people that have a dog that's over 10 pounds, and I'm like, I, I don't understand how anybody could take on so much responsibility. But here we are. I was like, oh, maybe I'll get a pet salamander or something like that, you know, something that you can develop some kind of attachment to. But, you know, if you forget to feed it for a few days and little little Kermit, I don't know why the salamander's named Kermit, but little Kermit passes away. Uh, no one's going to no one's going to think less of you, you know, or actually some of you probably would. I bet there are some there are some Terrapin or ter- there are some terrarium fans out there. Mark, you've probably had a terrarium. I have not. What kind of pets have you had? I've had a dog. So basically you're saying you're normal and more responsible than me, and maybe I should check myself before I wreck myself. Okay. Good yeah, talk. I think any respectable human should be able to take care of a dog. That's probably, that's probably fair and probably true. All right, let's move on, shall we? Adam writes, on Friday you mentioned Flash Gordon was from Planet and uh, Mango, and General Zod came from the Phantom Zone prison for Superman. Oh, General Zod came from the Phantom Zone prison. Okay. Yeah, I, I can't keep all my sci-fi references straight. Not really much of a sci-fi guy. Uh, Kristen writes, just heard yesterday's podcast. You're really single? I'm so sorry. I really thought Miss Molly was the one. Well, Kristen, so did I, but things happen, and I wish her all the best. And uh, it has been a while, so I had to let this sting of things pass a little bit. Um, but yes, indeed. So if you ever hear me talking about being out and about, um, I am uh, I'm a man who is on his own, uh, we'll see. Ne- ne- the next one has to be, I mean, it- it's time for Buck to, uh, time for Buck to get married and have some kids because, man, people are looking at me like, what's up with you? You seem nice and normal-ish. Where's, where's the kids? Where's the ring? You know, where's all that stuff? And I, I don't have a particularly good answer for them. I say I'm busy spreading freedom, saving the country. Richard writes, Buck, happy Hoosier hellos from the third shift. This racial gerrymandering case is crazy, crazy. Dems can draw maps based on race all the time, any day. I live in North Carolina, where for 140 years, the Dems held everything. Look up the old 13th district map sometime. It snaked from Charlotte to Durham. How is that local representation? Republicans got in and drew their own maps, and everyone says it's racist and bemoan that they drew them so Dems will lose. Of course they did. If the Dems want to win, come up with ideas and win in the arena of those ideas. Not impose your will from activist courts. Somehow Republicans lose. I don't get it. Shields high. Well, Richard, there are a lot of people out there who make bad decisions. So, you know, there are people, for example, who will will tell you with a straight face that putting... uh, chopped up olives and sun-dried tomato on a pizza or in some kind of a pasta sauce is a good idea. And I'm just here to tell you that that's almost never the case. But there are a lot of people who think that's true, just like there are still folks out there of the belief. And I, I, I don't know what to say other than just to speak the truth about it. There are still people in this world who think that Ghostbusters 2 is a good movie. I don't know what to tell them. I don't know. I, I can't. I can't fix that level of of wrong. You know, people can just they're allowed to be wrong on it. And so they are. And that's where we are. 
Let's see. Uh, Michael writes. Uh, hold on a second. The Chronicle Telegram did a good, a pretty good job of covering the story from the start. Gibson, you have to be uh, more careful with facts. Gibson's unlikely to get $44 million. I think I said that, Michael, uh, that they got awarded this. That doesn't mean they're going to get it, but you don't know. Uh, this stuff goes into court for a long time. And what will, what will actually happen, because I have some familiarity with the way these settlements tend to work, is uh, they'll end up paying a much smaller but immediate fee just to make the whole thing go away. But even even if Gibson's got a couple million dollars, that would probably be, I don't know what their legal bills are, but... If they got a million or two above their legal bills, that would be life-changing, I think. Uh, John writes, hey, Buck, great hair, great show. Don, you're a great American. I apologize for coming off as obtuse in the past, trying to cram too much info. That said, on nomenclature, you're very good about still calling immigrants illegal aliens, but calling the Iran deal a deal isn't appropriate, in my opinion. There are no deals with other countries. They are treaties which require the approval of Congress. Another example of Obama flouting our laws. Um, interesting, Don. Let me let me chew on that one a little bit. I, I think I understand what you're talking about. But, uh, yeah, I might have to think about that a little bit. But, yes, illegal alien is the is the proper legal term. And so I think that is the term that we should use. Um, Max. Hey, Buck. Last Wednesday in Boston. The last hour of the Freedom Hut was obliterated by a loony podcast. <sighs> man, I know. I don't know what to tell you, man. Sometimes it just happens in places. You know, they're just they're giving it a go to see how it does. And they're gathering data on the podcast. They're putting out on different stations. I, it's above my pay grade. Gina writes, hello again, Buck. Listen to you talking about the OJ and Bronco chase. I actually lived in Orange County at the time. We're in our high-rise off Jamboree in California, in Irvine, California, at the intersection of a couple of freeways. We're listening to your radios and had the lunchroom TV on. All of a sudden, we realized this is only a couple of minutes south of us. We all ran over to the window, looking back, probably a lame thing to do, but watched as it all rolled past. There were already people lining the route, so at least we're not alone in our lameness. We then listened to the car on our way home, flipped on ABC until its conclusion, Crazy. It's been 25 years and we all know he did it. Shields high, Buck. Well, well, Gina, yeah, I, I think that's fine that you went out to go see the OJ white Bronco motorcade as it as it passed. I probably would have done the same thing. The OJ trial. I, I really enjoyed the people versus OJ Simpson uh, FX show. If you haven't seen that, I do highly recommend it. Even if you know the OJ story, they do a good job of really showing you a lot of the different dynamics. And that was I remember that period in time. It was really when you started to have more of, you know, court TV was more of a thing. This uh, reality TV was more, you know, cable news was really getting going in a big way. And it, it was on nonstop. I mean, everywhere you look, the OJ trial was on all the time. It was a fascinating, fascinating period. That's that's for sure. Uh, Jeremy writes. President Trump should appoint Candace Owens. Yes, no, I know, I agree. President Trump should appoint Candace Owens as press secretary, but we shall see. Uh, Richard writes, sorry to hear about you and Miss Molly. Hope you're doing well. Richard, thank you so much. Uh, from what I understand, Miss Molly's doing just fine, and uh, I'm, I'm all right, and we are hopefully both going to be uh, leading productive and happy lives going forward, and I wish her all the best. Uh, she's a great girl. 
Scott writes, Buck, how feasible would it be if Iran continues their attacks for the U.S. to launch massive airstrikes and take out every known Iran military site in a single night, uh, thus making them unable to wage war on anyone? Shields high. Uh, Scott, you know, it wouldn't be that feasible unless you start thinking about nuclear. And we're obviously not thinking about that. That's crazy. I, I don't think that you'd be able to do it. I think that you would run out of munitions pretty quickly if you tried to do it. Um, I mean, you could, we could obviously destroy their air force and we, we could hit them hard enough that they wouldn't really be able to wage any kind of offensive war. I, you know, I, I guess it depends on what the parameters are when you say unable to wage war on anyone. Uh, we wouldn't be able to take out all Iranian ground forces and, and stop them from activating proxy terrorist forces abroad. So there's a lot of ways that they would hit back, even if we, let's say, took out their entire, if we took out their entire Air Force and air defense system, which I think we could do pretty easily and pretty quickly, uh, they still would be in a position to do uh, asymmetrical warfare and, and things like that in, in the Middle East. And if we ever tried to occupy, well, then we're in that nightmare scenario of, trying to hold the country together where you only need a small member. You only need a small percentage of the population in any country that really doesn't want you to succeed in rebuilding and stabilizing for your, your efforts to be stymied, greatly stymied. Um, Michelle, I don't know why I repeated that stymied, greatly stymied. Michelle writes anytime buck. If you want to take up a ride up your old stomping grounds, uh, there are beautiful and magical hill towns, the bridge of flowers in Shelburne falls, Lots of lovely places in upper New England. We can talk conservative things and how how it would change the world for the better. Um, everybody forgets their silly troubles when I pull out my Barbies. Hmm. Okay. Thanks, Michelle. Appreciate the offer. Very nice of you to, to write and to let me know that uh, things are going well up in Massachusetts area. So good times, good things. All right, everybody, that's going to be it for... Wait, Steve has one thing he wants to throw in here. Crazy Uncle Observation. The end of Pelosi's recent comments regarding impeachment reminded me of a movie quote. These things must be done delicately or you hurt the spell. Well, Steve, I have no idea what you're talking about, but I appreciate you writing in with the quote. Now we're going to close up the Freedom Hut for the day. Thank you so much for joining me, being with me. Always a pleasure and an honor. Tomorrow, we're going to have the aftermath of the Trump-tastic speech tonight to get into, so that'll be fun. Shields high.